This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein at Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me this morning is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm fired up about the segment you're going to do later, which is all about ecology and... All, all things good or some <laughs> I, I try not to rant too much yeah that's okay i'm gonna give <laughs> folks uh you will realize that today i'm giving dr ewan full range of ranting he can <laughs> he, he may go nuts um but i'll have my hand very close to his microphone button so just in case we have to cut him off should be right and dr, <laughs> dr. jim good morning dr good shane morning. is he, oh, he going to go off is he he's going to go off yeah but it's good. You're, you're giving him the opportunity. So. Yeah, no, we do. We, we have a huge show today, though, folks. Um, uh, before we let uh, Dr. Ewan off his leash, we will be talking <laughs> to an ethicist about CRISPR, the gene editing tool, which will be fascinating. Um, and we've had a great conversation even before the show about uh, all that stuff. So that'll be cool. But we're going to do some news first to kick things off. Dr. Ewan, do you want to start us? Uh, I found a fabulous story in the uh, journal Biology uh, about poo in space. So, you know, when you're, when you're travelling in space, mind as you would be aware, Shane, there are a lot of challenges that astronauts and, and various people face. Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot zero of G. challenges. You're doing that stuff in zero G. You've got to have your wits about you. <laughs> yeah, well, you've got to carry everything with you and then you've yeah. got to work out what you do with it once yeah. you've got it, right? And also, you know, if you're in space and you need to fix something and you haven't got the right tool, you can't just whip down the Bunnings. That's just not an option, right? But what? Or any other hardware store. <laughs> but what if you could turn a number two into a spanner? Well, wow. that's a pretty cool idea, right? So that's sounds smelly to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a big fan of recycling, in, in especially the International Space Station. You eat and drink any, anything, you know. So, yeah. so I, I'm more. I, if you'd said a sandwich, I would have been more excited. Yeah, now this is the ultimate recycling story. So basically what they're trying to do is they're using the humble E. coli, which we all know very well, which can actually convert human faeces into essentially a plastic known as polyhydroxybutrate. Apologies, I haven't pronounced that correctly. Mm. And then using a 3D printer, take that plastic and produce what you need. And they did this. They've actually produced a little wrench that they can use, basically produced out of poo. Now that's... Pretty awesome in my in my book. Can so, they three D print a toilet? How cool would that be? Yeah, I think they have very toilet. small toilets, as far as I understand. When they go yeah, into yeah. space, they're called little bags, basically, yeah, aren't they? Bags yeah. and tubes. Yeah, bags and tubes. So, so, so they take this E. coli and it produces this plastic, and then the story just gets cooler and cooler the more you sort of delve into it. Um, and yeah. then anything that's not used, you can essentially use to create um, a barrier for radiation, which of course is a big issue for people in space. So the the poo, if you like, that doesn't get used to make this plastic, you can just do some beautiful cladding inside your inside your you know your capsule whatever you're in to protect yourself from radiation. But the, the other great thing about this story is that they're going to look at different types of E. coli strains, genetically engineered strains that can produce different types of plastics. So ones that are stronger, ones that are more flexible, and so forth. But of course, what's really exciting is what could we do with this on Earth? Because mm. we all know plastics are a massive issues for the environment um, around the world. We all know about the huge issue of microplastics, as an example, in the and how devastating they are for marine life. But these plastics are fantastic because they're biodegradable, 
they're not made out of fossil fuels, clearly. They're coming out of our backsides. Mm. So you think, well, what if we could produce plastics made out of human feces? Now, the mind does boggle a bit, little bit about us all sort of being at home with our little bags and our E. coli, <laughs> batch of E. coli, and making our own plastics. But, I mean, I think the application of this is, is potentially quite large. Have and, they said anything about how durable this plastic is? Uh, well, that, uh, obviously, that's what they're touching on with these different strains is to try and make different types of plastic. So some that would be, yeah, harder wearing and, you know, stronger versus those would be more malleable for different mm. purposes. So... Because the idea, I mean, the idea of a, a spanner sort of conjures up ideas of needing strength, but there's a lot yeah. of things that don't. I mean, mm. you know, I'm looking at your coffee cup there, Dr. Ewan, and there's no reason why that couldn't be made of your own poo. I'm up for it. Yeah. yeah. I'm up for it. There, and if you think of, you know, our construction of, of many structures, you know, whether it's living structures or, or, or just yep. things within them, it doesn't need to be that strong. And many of the plastics that cause the most trouble in our environment are actually the weakest and the, you know, the softest plastics. So they're not, you know, plastic mm. bags and yep. things of that nature. So it's, you could also see this as at the end of line processing. So where you have water treatment facilities that deal with all of our excrements, um, you would probably do the processing there, not not in your humble home. Yeah, exactly. So they talked about having to take the equipment up to Mars. This is for, mm. with Mars in mind. And, of course, you've got to get all that equipment up there. But once you've got it up there, you're actually saving on things like water and everything else and yeah. all the other processing that would have to be done. Otherwise, it's, it, there's huge potential, I think. So pretty I'm wondering stuff. if we ever get to the point that you eat a specific diet depending on what sort of thing you want to make yeah. out of your poo at the other end. Right, we need to make X by, you know, by the end of next week. We better eat lots of, you well, know... Yeah. That, that's really interesting. Exactly. That would be really interesting, I guess, in terms of the bacteria that you'd be feeding, right? Yeah, that's right. The whole microbiome and all that kind of stuff. So, it's just, yeah, the more I delve into this, the more fascinating it becomes. Mm. I'm just excited that Dr. Ewan did a space story. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. It's uh, it's rare. It's combining combining nature, of course. E. coli, you know, doesn't get to look in, so, you know. We're, he, we're bridging the gap, Shane. Bridging he, the gap. He did tell me that he thought you'd be pretty impressed that he yeah. chose a space story. Well, you know, I've done many bio stories. It's true. And, and, and I, I knew it would happen sooner or later. Yeah. Something it was up there a would... pooey space story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, better than nothing. I'll take it. Uh, Dr. Jim, what do you got for us? Okay, I want to talk about uh, this idea of being able to read somebody's mind, which is kind of pretty much, you know, science fiction, long-term visions of, you know, can I stare deeply into your eyes and mm. read your mind? But this week, a group of from MIT presented a really interesting paper at a conference. They've basically come up with a computer interface that can transcribe words that you say in your head but you don't actually say aloud. That's nice. Which is pretty incredible. So what it is, it's a wearable device that's connected to a computer system and the wearable device basically runs around the back of one ear and then runs along the side of your jaw and to your chin. And what they've worked out is that... um, that you can have electrodes along this this uh, wearable and it picks up neuromuscular signals along your jawline that uh, are present when you say words inside your head, mm. which is pretty amazing because I would have thought that everything that's going on from a neuromuscular point of view when you're speaking inside your head would be happening in the brain, but apparently it's not. Wow. So they did all this testing to work out where the best sensor points were and they found this series of 10 spots which can all be captured just with this pretty simple line running behind the ear and along the jawline and so this is the information coming into the system and basically they've been able to train uh, a machine 
you know, machine learning system to be able to say, okay, well, this particular set of signals equates to this particular word, so you can end up with a really clear message, then because you've got these, as part of the device, there are bone conduction headphones, it means that you can also have information coming in. So that's mm. a two-way device. Wow. So let me tell you, so how it might work, for example, is you're sitting there playing chess, and this is one of the ways they tested it. In your mind, you can say the move that your opponent has just done you can say that into this system without actually speaking aloud. It can read your series of your chess move and then you can get advice back from a computer about what the best recommended follow-up move would be without oh. your opponent hearing anything because the headphones, they're not actually going into your ear canal yeah. so it doesn't interrupt anything that you hear or any interaction with your environment. So completely silently, you're basically setting, you know, putting out a question and getting a response without anybody around you being any the wiser that's kind of a, it's interesting I, I was thinking like i think that's a great example of how this you know a a use of it i was thinking more um one of the things when i teach people how to communicate you know and teach communication classes is i say there is a real impediment for me when we use a typewriter mm. so our our way of expressing our ideas changes as a result of us having to type and if yep. you if you want to test that you just go and use voice recognition software mm, totally. and show that you what you get out is a very very different product this is like a step beyond that yep. you know where you don't even because even speaking changes the product itself yeah, so totally. you go that next level up again where it's just just the so, so some of the like, examples wow. they gave of how this might be useful a really simple example is you're sitting in a meeting <clears throat> excuse mm. me, all of a sudden you want to check something on your phone. You don't actually want to pull your phone out, put in your code, you know, search up Safari or whatever you use. You don't have to do that. So you could just do that with, without uh, missing anything that was going on in the meeting in terms of hearing what was going on in the meeting. And that right. kind of seems to me uh, perhaps not the most exciting application. But then they talked about, for example, really noisy environments, firefighters, jet mm. pilots, situations in which you can't be heard. So you need to be able to ask a question and get some feedback without that. Equally, environments that have to be silent, so special operations, you know, situations where it wouldn't be wise to speak aloud, but you need to exchange information. And then, of course, people with disabilities, people who can't mm. actually speak, but are completely equipped to, you know, to, to mentally be able yeah. to communicate yeah. absolutely fine, just aren't able to verbalise words. I mean, if this can actually work, so at the moment they've got about 92% accuracy with some pretty simple systems, like asking some maths problems, so, you know, some basic mm. um, arithmetic problems, the chess situation... Um, but the guy who's doing the work said he thinks proper conversations are well within reach. It's just a matter of these electrodes being able to define closely enough what different signals, you know, what particular signals equate to particular words. But they think that it's it's will be possible um, to have these conversations going on silently. It's pretty crazy. Mm, I like it. It's uh, this is the stuff. If it's, it's used for good, I think <laughs> well, <laughs> it has potential. As with all science, there is always the chance yeah. even the humble pencil can be um, misused but uh, it, it's it's one of those areas where the 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 part of it that's fascinating to me is as you describe this this sort of muscular aspect not so you're not reading the brain waves here that's you're, what you're, i don't understand that is weird like uh, that is really out of out of the norm of how i thought they would have gone about this because there's been so much work recently on our ability to modify the position of prosthetics mm. using brainwaves and detection yep. of, of the same. And so it just seems as though a natural extension of that would be into language. But this is not that. This is a, a different pathway. And I wonder if that same altered pathway might be useful in 
utilization of prosthetics as well mm. because if you maybe there's something there that also you now, know. I, I honestly don't understand it so yeah. i can sit here thinking whatever thoughts i like in my head and i can fathom feel as though you're moving no i yeah. can fathom that you can't see anything in my face but i equally can't fathom that a little electrode could pick up something from my jawline that mm. is specific enough to be an actual word i can't i can understand that my brain can do that sure but but, but along my jaw and my chin i, well, I don't get that do they trial it with different languages i'm just curious how that plays out i don't think they have yet this, so this hasn't been published yeah. yet. this is presented at a conference it's very much work in progress but a lot of people picked it up because yeah. it's obviously got oh, a lot of cool. potential yeah watch this space it's cool uh speaking of similar stuff actually which um has uh, come out from the university of columbia um from uh, a lady named maura baldrini who is a professor of neurobiology there and she's been looking at uh, you know this this old idea that when you get to a certain age and i suspect most of the people in this room right now <laughs> may, have, may have reached this age that you stop producing. Twenty one, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You stop producing new brain cells in, in, this, in the way you did when you were younger, and so the ability of the brain to regenerate itself and so forth starts to go down, and 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 that sort of decline that we get um, is a result of that and, and many other issues, uh, and of course you know we. Saying just before the show that uh, you know we're all supposed to be dead by the age of forty in an evolutionary sense, so you know it's kind of weird when all of a sudden you you have to use your brain when you're eighty five very effectively. And so one of the things that this group from um, Columbia University that I've had a look at is the idea that um, older people actually, you know, older adults, so you know, let's say north of I don't know. <laughs> See how many people I can insult in one go. <laughs> North of 40? Um, <laughs> I think we all fit that, that, fit we all that fit bill. That. Um, might actually be able to generate new brain cells in exactly the same way and almost to the same frequency as younger people can. And I so hope they're right. And this, look, this is really interesting because um, these sort of new, um, you know, these thousands of new sort of cells that are being made, um, uh, what, what they've done is they've, they've had a look at uh, a whole group of people who died between the ages of 14 and 79, and they've very rapidly done autopsies on them. And they've found out that um, of these 28 individuals that they've looked at, uh, there isn't a huge discrimination between these brains. Um, and there's quite an age range there that mm. we're talking about. You know, that's pretty much the whole, the whole yep. gambit. And they found that, yep, well, actually, um, we seem to be able to generate these cells um, when we're older just as, as we are when we're younger. Now, now this is really weird because these hippocampal cells, which are the ones that are problematic, uh, that norm- we expected we didn't produce, in, in rodents and primates, when we look at those models, um, they don't. Mm-hmm. They don't produce them when they're, they're older. So the question is, what, what's going on? Why, why are we doing it? Now, don't get excited, folks, because the connections that are made between these cells, they haven't seen the same um, scenario for older adults. So we may, we may have the cells, we just can't use them. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just taking up space so our brains don't rattle around um, too much. You know, it's, it could be a problem. But, but the reality is there is, is um, you know... As medical science progresses, the idea that if we have those pieces that we need, then the connectivity between them might be something that we can, you know, actually have a crack engineer. at dealing with an engineer yeah. and, and, and reinforce. And in fact, if you look at much of the research going on in, in certain degenerative uh, disorders of the brain, it's about re-establishing those connections. Mm. So it might be that this is a good thing, but it's interesting research because it's um, it's completely counterintuitive to what people have always expected which was that this stuff just goes down so but also fascinating if it's not in other 
other species. Yeah, that's the part that for uh, me was sort of like, hang on, we're, so, we're always so close to primates in particular. I mean, you mm. know, some of the rodent species I get, but primates in particular, hmm, a little bit dubious about that. So, yeah, me we'll too. watch this space. So, between your jawline <laughs> voice detection and, <laughs> and this brain thing, I think we will, uh, we're going to have to keep on top of these two because they, they both could be uh, called out as dodgy inside of six months. That's true. We'll see. Three. In the studio with us now is Dr. Christopher Jingal. He is from the University of Melbourne's Department of Paediatrics. Chris, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me, Shane. Look, now we, uh, we've got you in because I got sent this book called Genes for Life, uh, The Impact of the Genetic Revolution, which is edited by Martin Delaticki and Grant Blaschke and Helen Sykes. <laughs> did, I it, did I get any of those right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you wrote the uh, you wrote one of the chapters in this, which is on um, the sort of ethics of of this new CRISPR um, gene editing tool. So, what I want to do first before we jump into the the sort of ethical discussion is, can you give us a bit of a rundown of how this CRISPR tool is different to what we've had in the past? I mean, there's been gene editing stuff for a while. Yeah. So what's new? Yeah, certainly. So as you said, so for sort of three or four decades, scientists have had the capacity to um, alter the genetic makeup of animals. Basically, how they did that was they used these... Um, quite sort of crude techniques where they get viruses and they deliver the viruses to change the DNA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember growing up, I would see sort of glow-in-the-dark mice and things. And things yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and yep. basically that's how they um, did those. But there were two sort of problems with that technique. One is they were very inefficient. So you would only make the change you wanted to make in a small number of cases. So to get the glow-in-the-dark mice, they'd use lots and lots of mice and then they'd inbreed the ones that had the Mm. uh, mutation together Mm. so I would be fixed Um, and they were also very inefficient in that they'd make lots of other changes too so they'd make lots of other changes and a lot of them would have you know side effects that you had to keep that made them you know very unhealthy Mm. Um, so for obvious reasons those technologies were never really had serious potential as a sort of clinically useful modifier of human DNA. Right. So, so, uh, so for example, a scenario where you have a person with a genetic, genetically determined disease where you would want to modify their genome specifically to stop that. Yeah. Th- those techniques can't really do that. So, I mean, like, so there were some attempts and there were some very spectacularly unsuccessful attempts. So <laughs> there was a gene therapy trial um, which resulted in a death of a... Of a of one particular 18-year-old relatively healthy uh, participant. Um, and those are the type of, you know, complications mm. he got from using um, those previous techniques is that they just weren't uh, precise enough and they weren't efficient enough. Okay. And so CRISPR comes into the, the mix. I mean, this thing, you know, five years ago, no one had heard this term. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what it stands for. Um, clustered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's just call it something. I can see why they call CRISPR. it CRISPR. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... What what's the difference? I mean, what what is CRISPR doing okay, so, by comparison? So CRISPR is a naturally found enzyme, essentially that's found in bacteria, and it's used as a defence mechanism. So it's existed for millions of years. Mm-hmm. It's been in bacterial um, cells, and basically it's used to attack vi- invading viral DNA. So it's two elements. There's the CRISPR element, which is like a sequence of RNA that can latch on to a particular sequence of DNA, mm-hmm. and then there's, there's the Cas9 molecule, which is like a pair of molecular scissors so this will cut 
um, the DNA and the bacteria use it to cut up the viral DNA to protect itself against an attack. Now, in 2012, um, a lab at Berkeley led by um, Jennifer Doudner and Emmanuel Charpentier found that you could modify this um, enzyme in the lab so it could target virtually any DNA sequence. And they also found that once you make it cut to a DNA sequence, you can recruit the cell's own DNA repair mechanisms to alter, to add, to delete genetic sequences. And, you know, as you said, it's just taken off. Um, it's mm. easy to use. It makes precise changes. They've used it in a variety of other animals now. There are trials underway using it in human somatic treatments. So, you know, it's a bit so, of boom. So in a nutshell, what, what we're talking about here is something that – a process that not only – can cut a little piece of DNA that you don't want anymore, but replace it essentially with whatever you want anywhere in the genome of the animal you're talking about. Is that is Yeah, that there right? are complications. So it's not anywhere in the genome. It needs a particular sequence to okay. have first that it can latch on to, but there's called PAM sequences, but these are throughout the genome. So it's, it's pretty mm. good. It's pretty close to that, but mm. perhaps not precisely that. Yet. Now, Let's let's sort of jump now into the sort of ethics aspect. I mean, can you give me first the reasons why we wouldn't want to be able to do this? Look, people are generally uneasy. I mean, there's so many different ethical things and so many different uses. So there's the ethics of doing research with it. Mm -hmm. There's the ethics of using it for yep. babies. I'll just go straight to the babies because okay. that's where I think people's like main <laughs> things are concerned. And I think, you know, people and myself included, when you first start to think about, oh, do we really want to be changing the DNA of our babies? People feel a bit uneasy about it. And, you know, you picture dystopias like in Gattaca and things where there's mm. the genetic haves and haves nots. Yep. And, um, you know, people get uneasy. But I think... Once you look at all the really specific ethical arguments that are put forth, um, most of those don't really justify this whole let's just ban it and never use it. Most of those justify let's use it in particular ways mm. to, you know, reduce suffering. So, so how, how do you, I mean, this is one of the things I find really difficult to, to get to that point. Because so if I, if I look at the medical profession at the moment, there are monstrous ethical dilemmas and the haves and have nots are clearly in place. And even in a, in a country like Australia, a rich country, yeah. there is a massive discrimination between people who have money and don't in terms of elective versus non-elective surgeries, etc. You extend that to... You nearby third world countries and wow the ethics are just blown out of the, the water in terms of you know whether or not you get to use an MRI machine or not etc 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 so how do you like even go close to sort of putting the point forward that that will not happen in this and this is a far more extreme case of what what the outcomes will be. I mean, there's a difference between me. So Ewan, Ewan goes to get heart surgery and he can't because he can't afford it, whereas I can get it, so I, I live longer, blah, blah, blah. That's a bit different to me being able to modify my child's DNA so that its, its DNA is then passed on in a way that has advantages and Dr Ewan's can't. I mean, this seems to be a bigger ethical mountain to climb for me. Yeah, so... You know, you've hit the nail on the head that that's the concern, is that right now we have um, inequalities in access to medical treatment, inequalities to access to a drug. Mm. Um, but those are primarily social inequalities. It's because, you know, we have money and some yep. people don't. What the danger of this technique will be is that you write those social inequalities into, into our DNA. DNA. Yeah, you exactly. Know? So yeah, that's then, my point. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, now, there's, you know, several ways to sort of think about this. So um, my essential sort of 
approach to is that, well, that's a political social problem who's mm-hmm. got access to a technology and it requires a political social answer. So it's not necessarily um, a purely ethical problem because the purely ethical solution is quite easy. We make it available to who needs it the most. Right. Um, in a public health system like Australia, we need to um, subsidise these technologies like we do for other expensive technologies to try and ensure equity. Mm. Yeah, so another dimension of CRISPR that I'm really interested in myself personally is the environmental dimension um, because CRISPR is being seen as quite a, a potentially huge solution for things like pest management. Mm. So as an example, you can edit and, and change the way um, you know certain um, individuals perform based on their genetics and, and, and so forth to potentially engineer them into extinction, potentially get rid of them. Um, but likewise, I guess you could you could also give um, certain individuals and species advantages, so they're less likely to go extinct or less likely to be vulnerable to the threats that they might face environmentally. But again, as a as an ecologist and, and talking a little bit about natural selection, there in a sense. I sort of think, well, where's the end point of this? Like, if we start running around manipulating species, um, where does that end up? So I guess I'm interested in kind of the ethical discussions around the environmental context as well, because when we're talking about humans, we're talking about one species. But if we start doing this in an environmental sense and then you've got all these species interacting, some of which may be edited, Mm. some may not have been, where does that end up? (laughs) I know, it's very, very good point. I guess we always are already kind of altering animals. Sure, sure. There's no question about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, CRISPR will just be kind of another tool to do this. So for me, the fundamental ethical questions, you know, are the same. It's whether you use CRISPR or whether you use selective breeding or another technique. It's about what are we trying to promote? Um, And, of course, you know, if we're trying to promote a sustainable long-living environment. That's how we should use the technology. In, in In that sense, though, Chris, I mean, I mean, Ewan would probably say this, but haven't we failed as a society with all of those other things? I mean, we, we, we are not meeting... Uh, I mean, our ethical and moral sort of requirements are <laughs> really not going well at the moment. We're seeing this in, in many areas of, of, you know, protection of species, uh, climate change, the whole lot. So if, if, we, if we're failing on... I mean, this is, this is a tough question to throw to an ethicist, I realise, but if we're failing on all of these relatively difficult ways to make these effects occur... What does that mean for when we have something like CRISPR that's so good and efficient at doing the same thing? I mean, does it does it get us in trouble? Well, it means we need to be better at using things. I mean, mm, I'm an optimist yeah. in that sense. Right, yeah, I mean, I yeah. just don't think, oh, we've done this really, really badly before, so let's just not try and right. expand technologies. I think, well, how can we use it better? How can mm. we use this technology mm. to reduce suffering? How can we use it to promote human flourishing? Mm. So maybe a catalyst for sorting ourselves out a bit better. So can I just ask where we're at in terms of legislation at the moment? You know, what what is actually allowed? Are we allowed to try this out in research clearly? Are Are we allowed to try it out in terms of actual therapies, treating patients? You know, what's allowed, what's not? Which countries are ahead, which countries are behind? Yeah, good question. So there's um, a very big distinction between using CRISPR for somatic cell therapies, which Mm -hmm. is generally allowed under, you know, existing legislation and framework, and using it to alter human germ cells, so Mm -hmm. using it to alter embryonic cells. Mm -hmm. Um, In Australia, it's never been done in embryonic cells. It... It looks like it's illegal. The law says something like it's illegal to make heritable modifications to a human cell that, in a way that will affect their descendants. Yeah, right. Um, but it's never been tried to be, so we're not exactly clear. But in the U, in Canada, 
mainland Europe, it's illegal. You can't do it for any research purposes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's probably like that in Australia too. The law in any way is a barrier to scientists trying to use it in a research setting. Mm -hmm. In the UK, you can use it in embryos up to 14 days old. Um, and I think that's a, that's a good legislation. Um, in the US, it's a really crazy legislative mm -hmm. sort of case. So um, you you can't use federal funds to do it, but if you're sort of privately funded. So let me just say quickly while we're on this topic of I think we should amend the laws in Australia to allow research to make them more in line with the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that is this tool, just in a Petri dish, um, is really useful for understanding human development. So we still don't know a lot about how humans go from a one single-celled um, organism to this really complex multicellular organism with different types of cells. Um, and what you can do with CRISPR is you can turn on and off certain genes early in development and see how they see how the embryo develops and this gives us an idea of the mechanisms really important in human development mm. and this could lead to things like better IVF success rates less better less rates of spontaneous mutation and things mm. Mm. but currently those uses seem to be you know off limits in yeah. Australia and other places Chris um, just to switch gear a little bit to the other side of this ethical debate before we let you go I mean I mean you're down at the the, the children's hospital um, you're in the department of pediatrics and the Murdoch children's Research Institute there. I mean, the, the ethical arguments from parents with kids with these often inherited diseases and genetically-based diseases is a powerful one. And how, I mean, how do you get that into the mix? Because I, I can imagine... You know, parents seeing this as, and, and you know, this is one of the problems with scientific advances. You know, this is all over the news. This is the savior of everything. But the reality is, you know, as you say in Australia, the legislation doesn't support its use at the moment. So, how do you go about pulling their side of the story into this ethical debate? Given, you know, they they're not really going to be interested in the other side of the story if their their kid doesn't have a future. Yeah, what, look, I mean, that must be tough. Uh, it is. Um, I. I you know, so there are questions about hype and hype of genetic technologies, mm. which I don't really have good answers for. So this is not just for gene editing, it's for other genomic technologies where yep. parents will see this and it's like, oh, well, I need a DNA sequence for my kids so we can find out what's wrong with them and cure. And it just doesn't work like that. It's just mm. there are some times like that, but the reality is much worse, is much sort of more complex. Um, but I actually think that case that you've got is a, you know, it's one of my cases for amending the legislation to one day allow it because for some couples this technology is going to be the only way where they can prevent their child yeah. from having a genetic disease um, and I think because of that there's um, reasons of justice and beneficence to allow them to do that um, even if it's quite rare cases where you get a benefit as opposed to other things mm. you've still got an arbitrary barrier then that's blocking people from getting this benefit and I think those should be removed yeah no, that's interesting is there a is there a good precedent out there for I'm trying to think of something else that has the power to do as much good but possibly also as much bad as CRISPR. Do we kind of have a precedent in terms of the ethics, the the law, the... I'm trying to think of, you know, what was well, big I, 20 I, years well, ago or 30 I always, years ago? I always thought of, like, um, nuclear, nuclear research. Mm. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's the big one. As a physicist, yeah. I always thought, you know, like, yep. we know where that started. Um, so what but, just, well, I guess what I'm saying yeah, is what yeah. can we learn from that about the best ways to go mm. forward and make sure this progresses in a way that is as, as ethical, as equitable, as, you know, successful as possible? Yeah, well, I think as we were talking about it when we first came, it's about what have we done wrong before yeah. and how can we ensure we do that better? And, you know, for me as an ethicist, I think the, getting the ethics right is really important and I think often there's a lot of confusion about 
um, what is the ethical problems, what is ethical right, and what are our values. Um, mm. You know, I think it, it first starts with discussion is what do we want our world like? What do we want to achieve with medicine? You know, mm. what are our ultimate goals? And then how can we use this exciting tool to achieve mm. those goals? Chris, look, it's great having you in here. One final question before I let you go. Is it rare to have an ethicist in a medical department? Because I have to say, I haven't come across this very often. It sounds to me like there should be one in every every farm, you know. Like, it, it, I mean, there, there have been so many ethical issues that I could go after. You know, having done this show for twenty five years, that I've had problems with, and to hear that the Department of Pediatrics has you there, to me, sounds like something that should be everywhere. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was no, kind of, no, it is, I think it is rare, though. It was, a, yeah, it was, there was only going to be one answer. But is, is it rare? I think it is rare, and yeah. I think it's becoming increasingly more important because as we get more and more technologies, we're going to have to make more and more decisions mm. about how to treat people. Mm. You know, if you look... You know, 50 years ago, there was less ways to treat people and medicine raised less, you know, interesting ethical issues. But now there's, you know, genomics, there's genome sequencing, there's, you know, neural interventions. There's all these ways that raise ethical issues. So, yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. Chris, thanks so much for coming in. The book is titled Genes for Life, the Impact of the Genetic Revolution. I'm sure you can pick it up at the anywhere online uh, I say good bookstores but do they still exist uh, look for it online folks Jeans uh, for Life um, thanks Chris great having you in and uh, keep up the good work thanks a lot guys now uh, Dr Ewan uh, over to you fella you're going to Dr Shane freak us out <laughs> Yes, it's not a particularly rosy topic to finish on today, but I guess I wanted to talk about something that we shouldn't be ignoring, uh, and that is the extinction crisis. And um, many of you might have heard the term the Anthropocene, which is this period that we're living in where essentially um, we can look at the impact of humans on the planet, um, and it is so large and measurable that it is unquestionable in terms of how we're impacting environment. And one of the consequences of that is species loss, so that is extinction rates. And Traditionally, we often refer to what's called the background or normal extinction rate, where you might see a couple of species at most sort of disappearing from groups um, year to year, but very, very few, in fact, um, depending on how speciose that group is. But what we're seeing now is uh, species loss in the thousands of times more than what we consider the background normal rate, which I should have said mm. before is based on the fossil record. So if right. you look at a species when it pops up, um, for a particular group, you can see how many persist over a certain period of time and you can calculate a metric for, you know, essentially how long on average a species is likely to live for um, and therefore calculate what's a normal extinction rate. And we're seeing extinction rates which exceed that in the thousands. So yeah, right. we, we, it's diabolical, essentially, and hence why we refer to this six-mass extinction event. So, so, so Dr. Ewan, can I just ask there, when you say rates, do you refer to, are you referring to how quick a particular species becomes extinct or how many are becoming extinct? So it, both. So it's both. So you know, so a species might persist, let's say for a couple of hundred, so for a couple of million years, or, or yep. whatever it might be, on average. You know, looking at all species overall, but then we can also therefore calculate um, how many species we're losing. Right. Now, bear in mind, of course, we don't have a great handle still on how many species actually exist on planet Earth, but what we do know is how many we're losing at a rapid rate. Mm -hmm. um, so, as an example, even in Australia alone, we currently have over eighteen hundred uh, plant, animal, and ecosystems that are listed as being threatened with extinction, and that number is rapidly climbing. 
Um, a recent uh, analysis was done where they looked at uh, 27,000 vertebrate species around the world and looked at their status, and over one-third of those vertebrates are declining toward its, towards extinction, um, and it's the, 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 um, the numbers are far worse for mammals. So m- mammals are decreasing even more so, um, and they're particularly vulnerable group. And, of course, we only have to look at examples like the Great Barrier Reef to see yeah. what's happening. I think yeah. you've just come back from a lovely holiday from in Fiji. Fiji. Yeah, yeah. Um, and coral reefs are these amazing, you know, sort of wonderlands, if you like. And we've seen the, the, the effect of coral bleaching, which, of course, is mm. um, related to climate mm. change to a certain degree. And interestingly, with that story, it's now appearing that the fish populations themselves are also disappearing as well, which has just come out this week, I think, in Nature or Science, one of those journals. Um, and that, of course, makes sense because if you lose these structures that the corals are building, that is the reef, we are now losing all the coral reef species, the fish species that depend on those. So what you're seeing essentially is a changeover in the types of species that live there. So rather than sort of those beautiful coloured damselfish and all those other things, butterfly yep. fish that you see yep. when you're swimming around in these amazing... Um, coral reefs, um, we're seeing um, conversion from these coral reefs to sort of more algal-dominated systems and things like parrotfish and so forth, which like to feed on those those particular right. types. Yeah. So you're seeing a change, but potentially a loss overall of species. Um, and, of course, we have a huge number of threats that are affecting why mm. Um, mm. all these species are disappearing. So climate change, of course, is talked about a lot. And um, I don't question that climate change is an issue. It clearly is. But by far and away, still the the biggest issue that we currently face is habitat loss um, due to things like urbanisation, but also for agricultural production and clearing. When you when you look at the species, um, do 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 we have an understanding of how the distribution of loss is happening? So, for example, you mentioned. I mean, obviously, apex predators, the big ones, are yeah. really in trouble. But what about you know insects versus plants versus? I mean, how is that playing out? Because I I still have this feeling, you know, it, it's, it, I'm not sure how to describe it, that some of them are benefiting. There will always be winners and losers. Yeah. There's no question about that. And so, you know, you only have to go to the middle of a, a city and you can see pigeons and, and red mm. foxes, as an example, yeah, living yeah. under people's houses and doing quite well. Um, but overall, certainly the picture is that species are declining. And your question about the fact, what do we know about um, different groups? That mm. is a huge problem. Okay. So, so, we, so we don't know? It? No. no. Yeah. So, so people often refer to what's called the other 99%, right. which is invertebrates, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which dominate the world in terms of total biodiversity, but we know so little about. They're tiny. Um, they're hard to survey in some cases. Um, they may live in areas that are hard to access, you know, rainforests or in the soil and things like that. And so... As compared to, say, mammals, which we know a huge amount about, we know very little about invertebrates. And that should be a real alarm to us. If you think about how dependent, as an example, humans are on bees as Mm. pollinators and the fact that they've had these huge collapses in their um, colonies because of uh, things like pesticides and mites and so forth. Mm. Um, All these other insects, too, are just as important. A lot of pollinators... Um, really important in breaking down uh, um, nutrients. So as an example, when something dies, beetles can break it down, return those um, nutrients into the soil, which improves soil health and so forth. So mm. they have incredibly important ecological functions. But we're losing insects in large numbers. And, but, of course, we're still really ignorant about yeah, yeah. how much we're losing. And we're, we're ignorant to the fact that there's species out there we haven't even described, but we're probably losing them before yeah, we even before know we they existed. The, the, I mean, the <laughs> other area there that um, you know, we hear a lot about things like the Great Barrier Reef and that, and you know, and part of that's part of it because it's extraordinary. Part yeah. of it also is because it's bloody important to our economy and people love it. Hugely, and, and so the bit that you don't hear about is the deep ocean. 
And we yeah. just don't we don't know squat about the decision. Yeah, so uh, you and I have always had these yeah. kind of fun conversations on Facebook about, you know, how much money should we be investing in space exploration versus, you know, yeah. conserving Which planet we, Earth. We agreed right? was a lot. That is always my retort is, you know, if we want to understand something that's really, really challenging and develop technologies as a result of that, well let's go to let's go deep to the deep sea. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I think space exploration definitely has a purpose, and 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 we should be investing in that absolutely. But the fact that we know so little about our home mm. just it does my head in. I mm. mean, yeah, there is so much to be understood about the deep sea, and not to, not to mention, of course, rainforests and other systems. Mm. Um, yeah, there's just a huge amount that we don't understand, and part of that, of course, comes back to investment um, in in the environment. So, as an example, Australia allocates less than one percent of its GDP to conservation of species. Now, you think, well, Crazy. this is our one home, and we have all these species that we're nowhere dependent on. So, as an example, we know that uh, if you take a walk in a, in a green in a, in a park in green space and so forth, that has a positive benefit for your mental health. We also know from research that people who have access to these areas, um, you tend to have lower crime rates. Right. So because, of course, and that makes sense, if you think about it, people are happier, more content, healthy. Um, they may be, you know, less um, inclined to do things that we don't want them to do. So mm. taking care of these things that we depend on would seem to make good economic sense as well, but we're not investing in them. And so mm. and I think until we do that... Um, we're probably not going to see an improvement. But, of course, the other thing, too, that really is the the really, really large elephant in the room and, and a taboo that many people um, often don't want to talk about, but we need to, is how many of us are there on the planet and what we consume. So I was involved in some research just recently. We, we looked into this about the fact that if you look at how we um, measure change in the environment in terms of species loss and indicators towards improving the situation, there's not good integration between the big drivers of what's happening, which is, you know, government, society, population size, consumption, and what's happening down the bottom in terms of the industries that are driving some of these things that are not good for the environment. Three, triple, Yeah, so look, I, I want to continue with a bit of the sort of dire statistics, if you like, but then I want to finish on, I think, hope, and I think that's really important in the conservation world. Uh, more. So we don't spend the rest of the day drinking scotch. Yeah, well, I mean, it is good for <laughs> chocolate producers and beer makers um, to sort of, you know, talk about doom and gloom, but it's not great for the environment overall. So, um, you know, if we look again at trends in terms of species um, that are known to us, um, you know, things like lion populations have dropped by 43%. Um, there's now only 5,000 Borneo and Samar and orangutans left on Earth. Um, even giraffe populations, which are about 100,000 um, plus, um, a short time ago are now under 100,000. And worse than that, they've been split into four different species. So okay. you've actually got less of what you thought you had in the first place. So, And to bring it to, a, I guess, more of a local context um, for listeners, just in, uh, for people to be aware, you know, Australia has the worst conservation record in the world that you know it is it is unquestionable if you look at some of the numbers so since european arrival roughly 230 years ago we have lost 30 mammal species um and that equates to about 35% of all global mammal extinctions. Now, get your head around that, 35%. So if, it, if this was the Olympics, we'd be, we'd be ecstatic, right? Yeah. But it's not. <laughs> this is extinctions of mammals. And so, and we're still losing mammal species. So on an average, about one to two species per decade. And the most recent um, examples of that have been the Bramble K melamies, which is a small rodent living on Torres Strait Island, probably the first mammal in the world to go extinct due to climate change because of sea level rise. Mm. So basically its sole habitat was inundated by water. Right. 
um, game over. You and this, I mean, why are we so good, bad? I'm not sure which term to use at this. I mean, is there something specific that we're doing that is putting us at 35%? I think in the case of Australia, uh, there's a a few things going on. Um, Clearly, the impact of the feral cats and uh, red foxes has been massive in Australia. So, Australia has this situation, of course, we've been isolated for millions of years, and that's why we have this remarkable endemic fauna. Mm, so species yeah. found nowhere else on Earth, yeah. um, all the things that we know and love so well. But it also means they are naive, in a sense, to introductions of invasive introduced predators. Right. So when the feral cat came in and the red foxes come in as well, of course, they've wreaked havoc on our wildlife. Um, and Australia has a really poor... Uh, predator guild, so groups of predators. So you mentioned before apex predators, and we know apex predators are really important because they have a regulating role in the whole ecosystem. Now, going back in the past, we used to have uh, Tasmanian tigers on the mainland, not just in Tasmania, mm-hmm. but all the way up to Kakadu. Yep. So they went right up right up north. We had a mainland version of the Tasmanian devil. We had the Philaca leo, which was a large marsupial carnivore, a little bit like a saber-toothed tiger, sort of similar sort of thing. We had a really diverse range of predators. Now, they're all gone. So when cats and foxes came in, all that w- was there was the dingo. Now, that's been persecuted over large areas. So cats and foxes could essentially do what they liked. Free yep. And also they were being um, boosted by rab- rabbit numbers. Now, on top of that, we've had land clearing in large rates. So we've opened up habitat, made it more accessible, if you like, for predators who are not being um, controlled by apex predators. So it's the perfect scenario for these introduced predators. And do we, do we have a disproportionately large number of what I'll, I'll use the term, it's probably wrong, hark populations? So, you know, where we literally are the only place where that species exists. I mean, is it disproportionately high for Australia? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, what we call endemism. So that is species that are found nowhere else. Right. We are way off the charts, you know, sort of 80%, 90% plus for large numbers of groups. So, yeah, if these things disappear from Australia, that's That's it. it. They are are nowhere else on Earth. And, you know, plants especially, uh, mammals, reptiles, incredibly high endemism. Mm. So, yeah, if we lose them, we don't get a second chance. That's it. I was never going to know that term. Yeah, yeah. So that's... Thank you. Yeah, so so (laughs) it's a a really important thing to remember. And so, you know, we've lost these mammals, we're continuing to lose them, but other species as well. But I think... What we need to also remember is that there is things that we can do and that are happening. And so, as an example, recently um, I was really inspired by the fact that eastern quolls, which are a little sort of marsupial carnivorous um, animal, sort of cat-like size, but they are not a cat, they are a marsupial, they were introduced to uh, Baduri National Park in New South Wales, so reintroduced to the mainland. They still exist in Tasmania in quite good numbers in places like Bruni Island, Mm -hmm. but have become extinct from mainland Australia. Now, they were reintroduced after extensive fox baiting, I mean, predator control, and, um, of course, they have to monitor to see how they go. But that's inspiring to me that we can actually try and bring some of these Mm, things back. Um, There's the case of the uh, swift parrot work in Tasmania, which I think, again, is really inspiring, where these swift parrots, ironically, are probably being um, endangered by uh, sugar gliders, which were introduced to Tasmania, um, which take over their nests, pull the young out, kill the young, and take over their hollows. And part of the reason for that, of course, is that the hollows are now becoming uh, less available due to forestry. So you've got the sugar gliders and the swift parrots competing for these hollows quite aggressively. But the scientists involved in this work have developed these little traps that basically exclude the sugar gliders from the hollows mm. so that the uh, parrots can use them, but the sugar gliders can't. Um, nice. I think you had Kylie Soans on a yeah, couple of weeks yeah, ago, yeah, we yeah. and she's done some brilliant work on rope rope bridges that go across highways to allow mm. um, possums to move from one side of the highway to the other so that, you know, um, roadkill is not an option and, and sorry, is, is, is stopped and can connect populations up. So I think... The thing that I want to highlight with that is that we can 
with science, we can still actually address some of these major challenges. Uh, but of course, if we don't treat those big level things at the same time, like our population size, like mm. our consumption, like the choices we make day to day, then we're always going to be up against it. So we need to be doing both things at the same time. Um, but yes, there is hope. So I don't want this sort of message to be, well, it's just, mm. all, you know, all going to go to hell in a handbasket and yeah. that's it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Well, I think that yeah. is, I mean, the message is there's an urgency. There is absolutely an urgency. So, and on on that topic, uh, a paper was released last year where twenty thousand scientists around the world issued a warning to planet Earth. Essentially, and I, I myself signed on to that. And that that mm. paper has got huge attention around the world. Basically, scientists saying like, "This is this is where we're heading as a, as a as a planet. And if we don't do so, something about the environment very quickly, we're all going to be in a lot more trouble than yeah. we already are." <laughs> yeah. Doctor Ewan, thanks so much. I mean, it's you know. I, I knew if I let you off your leash, you'd go well. Um, Don't, I'm going to put it right back on well, you now. Well, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm not going there. Um, I, this, is, this is one of those areas, though, where they, they, we can't talk about this enough. And we've talked about it a lot on the show over the years. You know, yeah. we, have, we actually have two climatologists now as yeah. team members on the show as a result of some of this stuff and having you and Jen here as well covering the ecology stuff is really important so thanks so much dr jen good to have you in the studio thanks for having me shane great to see you good to see you too uh we're going to leave you now with eat it folks um until next week thanks so much for listening to an hour of science and listening to triple r remember it is april amnesty so if you can support the station that would be great this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.